Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, Pastor Kirk is continuing a series on the church as we look at people of faith taken from Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 4. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers and serve and worship, we would love to have you join us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you need more information, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing a series on the church. Let's listen together. If there is any hope for this world, any hope for peace, reconciliation, brotherhood, it will only be found in Christ. If there is any future for our country in which we live, any hope of a return to goodness, righteousness, kindness, it will only be found in Christ. If there is any bright prospect for you or your family, any true peace, genuine love, real meaning and significance, any hope of an eternity in heaven, it will only be found in Christ. For as Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way of knowing eternal life or having any prospects of a home in heaven. Well, we began our message last week with those words, and we want to continue today, and so I want to step back just a little bit because of guests and others who are here that so that what I say today will be set in a proper context to remind you where we are and what we are talking about in this series of messages entitled, The Church of Christ. Now that in itself may have caused a little bit of confusion because I'm not talking about the denomination that wears that name. I'm talking about what is the true Church of Christ in the world today. What is the true people of God in the world today? Beginning with Adam and Eve, the very first people created, and the family that followed their sons, Abel and Seth, the descendants of Seth, men like Lamech and Enoch and Methuselah, on down to Noah, and after Noah, others, including Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of his brothers, this family that made up the first people of God in the world, a family that grew into such a number in their uh, pilgrimage down in Egypt for some 400 years, growing to three million or so people. And under Moses being led out of Egyptian bondage and into the wilderness and finally being constituted as a nation of people, a nation under God. While Moses was at the top of the mount receiving the commandments of the Lord, even then the people were at the bottom of the mount making idols. But this nation of Israel became the representation of God's people in the world. But like that first family, by and large, they failed. So much so that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them back to God. And finally that God sent the perfect prophet, his own son, the one prophesied to be the true redeemer, the true Israel, one who reenacted the history of Israel. In the same way that, that the people of Israel came out of Egypt, Jesus at a very early age came out of Egypt. 
And just like they were miraculously delivered through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism, Jesus was baptized. And after that, they were instantly in the, uh, the um, wilderness being tempted by the enemy to which they failed in many ways. Jesus went from his baptism into the wilderness to face temptation personally and to defeat it. So through Christ, we have the true redemption because God is seeking to raise up. This is the key truth undergirding this entire series, that God's purpose for mankind is to raise up a worshiping community, people who will live for His honor and for His glory. And as we see those true worshipers in that first family and in that nation of people, and in the church today, the final and complete manifestation of God's people in the world, understand that there are always intermixed in those congregations those who truly are people of faith and those who are not. There is a dividing line running right down through this service today. And on one side, I pray most I hope and pray all, perhaps, that are here today would fall on the side of those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone for God's glory alone as it's taught in Scripture alone. But it could be that among us there are those who fall on the other side of that line, those who do not know Christ by faith. Those who maybe know religion. Those who maybe know what it means to go to church on a regular basis. Maybe even haven't walked an aisle or prayed some rote prayer or lifted a hand in confession and maybe even water baptized but still is not a true person of faith. For the one thing that separates people in this world are those who know Christ and those who do not. The true church of Christ is comprised only of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So what is faith? We began talking about that last week, and in our larger outline, we began, number one, with an explanation of faith. And God gives it right off the bat in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation or their approval from God. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are Visible. And what we discussed last week is that God gives us a twofold definition of faith. It is the assurance, or as the King James says, the substance of things hoped for. Faith is future focused. Hope is not wishful thinking in the Bible, it is a steadfast confidence and assurance. So faith is the confidence and the assurance of everything that we hope for that will come true in our lives in knowing Christ, a home in heaven and eternal life. It is also the conviction, the evidence of things not seen. And verse 3 kind of expounds upon that and says faith has not only a future focus, but faith has a, a, a backward focus. And this backward focus is this, that, that it is the conviction, faith is the conviction, the evidence of what we cannot see. And it's knowing that all that we do see was made out of what we cannot see, and that is the word of the Lord speaking it into existence. Now we said that there are three truths about faith when it comes to you and me. It begins in the head. It begins with understanding or comprehension. But somewhere that needs to lead to the heart. And we use the heart as a way of talking about the will and the emotions, the real us 
down deep inside. For if faith uh, to you is only your head knowledge, it won't get you to heaven. There has to be a heart knowledge. This is where we understand, but this is where we run up the white flag and surrender our lives to God in faith and in repentance. And all of that results in a changed life. If any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. If you are what you have always been, you are not a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been changed by their faith and their trust in the Lord. And I gave you this working definition of faith. Faith is trust which produces obedience. Trust which produces obedience. Now, that is the explanation of faith. We talked about all of that last week. So then the writer of Hebrews begins to give us some examples of faith. This is Roman numeral number two. Some examples of faith. And there are a number of names listed in this chapter. Some 16, if I counted them correctly. 14 men and two women. Now, some of you were very quick to say to me after services, oh, I've heard you preach that before. Shannon, because you have some notes in your Bible. And some of you have written down some of these points. I see familiar smiles and nods all over the auditorium. I want to tell you right now, I have never preached this sermon before. Now, some elements of it we have talked about. Some parts of it I've given to you, and you've probably heard it other places because these basic points of the larger examples is something that probably half the commentaries you read on Hebrews will all mention them. What are they? What does Abel teach us about faith? Faith what? It does what? It worships, okay? We talked about that last week. We're going to pick back up with that because it's so important today. I need to say some things. <clears throat> Enoch will teach us that faith does what? Come on, you've got it in your Bibles, your notes. What is it? Enoch uh, says faith what? Faith walks. It's in God, but faith walks. We'll talk about that next time, Lord willing. And then Noah teaches us that faith does what? Faith works. All you smarty pants people have suddenly got real quiet. Faith worships Abel. Faith walks Enoch. Faith works, that's Noah. Abraham teaches us faith waits. Faith waits. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then Moses teaches us that faith does what? You don't have anything because I've never said that before. Ha, ha, ha. Faith wins. Faith wins. And we'll talk about that, Lord willing, when we get to us. So, going back to Abel. It's interesting that Abel is the first example of faith in this great Hall of Fame chapter of God's Word. Faith, uh, Abel appears on the scene for a very brief time. One of the first two sons of Adam and Eve. We know absolutely nothing about him except that he was a shepherd, that he offered his worship to God, that his brother got mad at him and killed him over it. But even in that first story, we learn a variety of things about worship that even then, way back just out of the Garden of Eden, that there was evidently an appointed time for worship. And in the process of time, they came and they offered their sacrifices. They, they came to some place that was designated as a place of worship. They came in a, a prescribed manner. They didn't come empty-handed to see what they could get from God on the day of worship. They came bringing something to God because worship is not just about what you can get from God. It is first and foremost about what you will offer to God. Now, I want to say to you that that is where we've turned everything upside down in our day and time. In our time and our days of me worship, 
of looking for what I get out of the worship service, of looking to see what, what might profit me in this time that we gather for worship is the wrong way to come to God. We are to come to God to offer up things to Him, the fruit of our lips, our praise, the gratitude of our hearts, and guess what? We are also to offer to God something else. But then again, to mention that, I would be meddling in your business too much. Amen? But understand it's about giving something to God to show our love and our devotion to Him. Well, now, understand that, that Cain brought some gifts to the Lord also, but Cain's worship was not accepted by God while Abel's was. Most of the time, what you will hear is because Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain did not, but I don't believe that was the issue. Later on, when the Lord gives a lot of detail about what kind of offerings to bring, many of them have nothing to do with blood. The blood sacrifice was for atonement. They were not coming to make atonement for their souls in this worship service. They were coming to offer uh, and to give to God something that shows their love and their devotion to Him. That's why verse 4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending or approving of him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he is dead, he is still speaking today. So why did Cain slay his brother Abel? He got angry because God didn't approve of him. God didn't approve of him, not because just of his sacrifice, but it was that he was just offering a token to God, not true love and devotion to God. This is what 1 John 3 says about that. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Worship, our corporate worship, should create a deeper love for one another. He says, John says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. What happened way back in Genesis 4 was the beginning of every church split you see take place today. It was the reason for every act of persecution against the people of God in the world today. Every word of gossip has its roots in the story of Cain and Abel. Every tactic used for undermining a devoted Christian, for wars and rumors of wars, ultimately has its roots in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain worship that God does not accept. Abel worship which honors God. The worship wars. There is a key truth here, and it is this. And this is where we left off last week. Faith worships. And worship is not state of the art. It's state of the heart. It's not state of the art. It's not about colored lights on the back wall. It's not about fog machines lending some idea of transcendence. It's not about lowered lights out there while things up here are brightly lit in performance mode. That's not what worship is all about. It's not state of the art. It's state of the heart the state of your heart and the state of mine. So I said all that to ask this question, or these questions. What is so important about corporate worship with a church family? Why is Sunday morning such a big deal? 
I believe that this hour is the most important hour of the week. I believe that it's more important than your work and your vocation. I believe the Bible teaches that it has greater impact than your hobbies or your playtimes. I believe that it does more to secure for you a bright future than your schoolwork. Now don't go home and say to your mom and dad, okay, I'm dropping out now. But it does more about your future than your school, your education. This hour is more important than who your future mate may be. It is the most important hour of every single week. Now understand, it's not because God dwells in this room like he dwelt in a temple or a tabernacle in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, God was in a physical place among his people. And people could only approach him through a mediator, a priest, or a high priest. There were certain times, there were certain seasons, there were certain holidays, there were certain holy days that that were special to those people that they were to observe and that they were to keep. But we are now under a new covenant. God is is not confining himself to a building made by hand. God lives inside you. You are a temple of the Holy Ghost. He is there because God put him there. He is God in you. Every place your foot falls is a holy of holies. Every time you hum a hymn or sing the words wherever you are, it is worship. You need not go through a mediator, a priest, or a pastor to to offer up your sacrifices or your praise to God or your prayers. You can go directly into his throne room yourself. So with all that being true, why is this so important? Why is meeting together so necessary? Why is it that I cannot please God with my life and neglect this right here? I want to try to answer that. I'm going to give you five words. I'll move as quickly as I can. You know, well, never mind. Number one, awakening. Awakening. You need this. By the way, the church needs you but not nearly as much as you need the Lord's church. Because you need what happens here. And one of those things is awakening. I don't know if you noticed on the front of your worship guides, but uh, you have these words by David Mathis, who says, Worshiping Jesus together may be the single most important thing we do. It plays an indispensable role in rekindling our spiritual fire and keeping it burning. Corporate worship brings together God's word, prayer, and fellowship, and so makes for the greatest means of God's ongoing grace in the Christian life. Did you hear that? That corporate worship is the greatest means of God's ongoing grace in the Christian life. There's an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in the meeting together with other believers. He goes on to say this in another place. Often we come into corporate worship feeling a sense of spiritual fog. Have you ever walked into church on a Sunday morning feeling like you were in a place of spiritual fog? During the rough and tumble of the week, 
the hard knocks of real life in the fallen world can disorient us to ultimate reality and what's truly important. If you don't believe that the rough and tumble dailiness of life does that, talk to a school teacher this morning after the first week of school. We need to clear our head. We need to recalibrate our spirit. We need to jumpstart our slow heart. And he says, that's what corporate worship can do in your life. It will help you clear your head. It will help you recalibrate your spirit. And it will help you jumpstart your slow heart. This isn't something that's just true today. 500 years ago, Martin Luther said this. He found corporate worship powerful in awakening his spiritual fire. He says, at home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And if that's not enough, Go back a thousand years ago to find this was still true then. You hear it in the words of a man by the name of Asaph. And you find it as he writes the words of Psalm 73. Listen to what he says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on to talk about how he feels like keeping his heart clean and keeping his hands innocent, that it was all in vain. Do you ever feel like your spirituality is getting you nowhere? Do you look at the world, the people who disregard God and have no respect or reverence for Him, and they seem to prosper while you seem to suffer need? Do you ever feel like life is just unfair? Then listen to what Asaph said in verse 16 and 17, in the very middle of this psalm. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, and this is where the psalm turns, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. When I went into the house of God with the people of God and fixed my eyes on God instead of the unfairness of life, Instead of the inequities of what this world has to offer, when I focused on God, all of a sudden the fog began to clear. My heart and spirit began to lift. All of a sudden my perspective was changed. I was awakened to the real realities. And he goes on in the rest of the psalm and talks about, I know what their true end is. And I know what God's blessing for me will be. What changed for him? The house of God. I'm going to tell you, if you neglect the house of God, if you're a child of God, and you neglect the corporate worship with God's people, because they are oh so imperfect, aren't we? And if you neglect the house of God and the gathering together to to worship the Lord and to study the Word and to fellowship and to pray together, you will never see things clearly in your own human wisdom. Even if you study the Scriptures every day, if you pray every day, if you're trying to do that solo, you'll never have the blessings of true perspective. Awakening. A second word is assurance. Assurance. It was God who first said it was not good for man to be alone. So he created a woman. Why? Because God's plan is for community to take place. 
God blessed that man and that woman with their offspring. And understand this, it is not good for us to be alone. I have always thought that I was such a loner. When I go into a crowd, I look for the corner where I can keep an eye on everybody. For me to just sometimes have a conversation with people is something I have to work at. I'm so much just wired up to be by myself. But I want to say to you that I'm not good by myself. God has shown me over the years of ministry how desperately I need other people for my own spiritual growth, for my own mental health. God has wired us up for community. It was God who said it's not good to be alone. And when you think through the heroes of the faith and the people God used, you'll notice that there were always people behind the scenes that helped make their life as productive as it was. You remember when Joshua was was battling Amalek and they were fighting there uh, in Exodus chapter 17 that, that Moses was up on the mountain and as long as he held up the staff of the Lord, God's people were victorious. But when his arms got weary, what happened? His, his arms began to sink down, and as they sunk down, then the tides of battle would turn, and the Amalekites would then be defeating the Israelites. But he only had so much strength, and so uh, we find Aaron and her stepping up beside him, one on each side, and putting their hands underneath his arms to lift them up, to help hold up his arms so that the people of God could experience victory. Without Aaron and her, the outcome would have been so different. But whoever gives them the credit? In Elijah's day, Elijah lamented to God, I, even I alone, am the only one in Israel who loves you and stands for you. And God had to rebuke him and remind him, Elijah, there are 7,000 that you're not even aware of that have not bowed their knee to Baal, and they're behind you even though you don't see them. And even besides that, Elijah, this is part of my cure for your spiritual depression. Go and find Elisha and let him know that I'm calling him to be your successor. And with Elisha as your partner beside you, you will see even more victories. The Apostle Paul, a great preacher, a great man, but he always had a faithful company of of men and women who were a part of his evangelistic team. People like Barnabas, people like Silas, people like Timothy, and so many others. The Epaphroditus, and so many others. God wired us up. God intended for us to serve and to work and to worship in a community of faith. That's what the church is. You cannot neglect that and be strong in the Lord. You need it for your personal assurance. Why assurance? Why does it give you assurance? Because you are alongside others who when we doubt, we lift one another's arms up. That we are not standing for God alone. That we are together in serving Him that with others at our side, as Timothy said, or as Paul said to Timothy, we can truly know in whom we have believed. A third word is the word advance. Advance. It's called a new birth for a reason. When you are saved, you're not just rebranded. You're not just renewed. You're not just, you know, remodeled. You are born again. You are born afresh and anew. You are born from above. And your spiritual birth is just as real and it's even more relevant than your physical birth when that took place. 
I don't remember my physical birth. I was born in my grandparents' home in Mountain View, Arkansas, on the morning the wee hours after Easter Sunday. I have no memory of that, but I remember a night in November when I was nine years old at a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, when God made eternal life real to me and God called me to himself. And if he had not called me first, I would not be saved until yet because it was not my ingenuity, it was not my initiative, it was not something that I was naturally just born to, it was something that God did. If he had not given me the gift of faith and called me to himself first, I would never have known him. But I remember when I was born again. And from the time that I was born and from the time that you were born spiritually, this spiritual life began a process of growth, a progressive growth. The goal, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is that you and I will eventually grow into the image of Jesus Christ. We will be like Him in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. As Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Brick upon brick. A little bit at a time. Here a line, there a line of Scripture. We are being built up, Peter says, into a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God in the world. Christian growth is a process. Sometimes we may go Sunday in, Sunday out, and not be aware of a single thing that worship service did for us, except that we were faithful to meet with God's people and to exalt Him, and to worship Him. But listen to me, you are being changed. You are being changed in ways that you cannot see, in ways that you cannot measure. Oftentimes, it is a long process of time. Other times, sanctification, this growing, this advancing in Christ's likeness can happen on the spot. Sometimes it can happen in a single service. We pray that God would make these experiences many, but that there would be times in the Holy Spirit when He takes the Scripture read, when He takes the prayer spoken, when He takes the hymn that is sung, the truth that is preached, and He presses it right into the point of need in our heart and in our life, and we walk away different people. Oh, for those moments when God changes us in ways that we see and know and it happens in a service or a Bible study or in faithful men or faithful women or wherever it is. Oh, may those times be many, but may we remember that even when we don't see that over time, God is changing us into his light. We're advancing, we are growing in faith. Let me give you a fourth word. It's the word accountability. Accountability. One of the main emphasis for the church and for the church to meet, if you read in the book of Acts and you read in the, in the epistles, the letters of the apostle Paul or Peter or John, when you read uh, in the New Testament particularly, one of the things that is a persistent focus A persistent focus under this new covenant of grace as God's people is the building up of the whole body. I have to think and live under the pressure every single minute of every single day. It's my responsibility to try to say the things and establish the ministries. And Pastor Dan lives under the very same. Our elders live under the very same. The pressure that we need to 
do ministry here in such a way that we can help build up the people who come here for worship. But listen to me. Every last one of you believers, you have a similar responsibility to help build up the people of God. Paul writes this in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's talking not just to pastors. He's talking to church members. And he's saying to you church members there at Colossae, you need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You need to teach one another, admonish one another, sing together, and offer thankful a service to God together. And the emphasis is one another, one another, one another. The unique thing about the church's weekly gathering is not that it's just a time when we worship, me in my little silo there in the pew, but it's when we build each other up by worshiping together. I need to hear your voice singing to God. When called on, I need to hear your prayers because it helps build me up. It strengthens me. This is a corporate thing. One of these recurring themes throughout the New Testament is that phrase, one another, love one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, greet one another, admonish one another, teach one another, forgive one another, exhort one another, bear with one another, be kind to one another, submit to one another, serve one another, show hospitality to one another, confess your faults to one another, fellowship with one another. Psalm 26, 28, or 30, one another's. Let me tell you something. Every last one of them is just as authoritative as the Ten Commandments. God wrote Ten Commandments in stone, but God writes these commands in His Word and on your heart. And when we don't do those things, when we don't do those things with one another and to one another, we are in direct disobedience to God. And when we don't gather together for worship and for fellowship and to study, when we neglect the house of God, we neglect all of these commandments. We're accountable to one another. Let me close with this one. And all God's people said, Amen. It's two words, and for lack of a better way of saying it, accentuated joy. Accentuated joy. When something is accentuated, it is heightened. A heightened joy. The heightened experience of worshiping corporately together is what we're talking about. Our own sense of awe is accentuated. Our own adoration of God is increased. Our own joy is doubled when we worship Jesus together. Do you remember those words that kind of summed up what life was like after the day of Pentecost and, and on those early days of the Lord's church as we know it? It says in Acts 2, 42 and 43, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. It's great. It's wonderful to practice private worship. I'm thankful for some of our own shut-ins. Some of you who are watching this service right now because your health will not permit you
to be in the house of God. Many of you who are not able to worship regularly with the church and haven't been able to for some time because of health or age, I know that many of you want to be here more than a lot of these folks that are. I know that. And it's wonderful to have the technology to do that. But I'm going to tell you that no sense of awe, no sense of heightened joy, no sense of deeper reverence and respect for God can come in private worship. At least not to a measurable sense. But together, in corporate worship, the graces and the blessings we uniquely enjoy are deeper and richer since our delight in Jesus expands as we magnify him together with blended voices and blended hearts. This secret joy in corporate worship is that we can forget ourselves that we can more greatly focus our attention on the Lord Jesus and live with a happy awareness that we are not alone in having our souls satisfied in Him. Fifty-two. Fifty-two. Let's put it on the screen. Fifty-two. That's the number of opportunities we have to gather on a Sunday morning to worship God together corporately as the people of God. Just 78 hours out of almost 9,000 hours in a year. In a typical year, we might have two Sundays where the outside conditions, the weather, will cause us to cancel a worship service, a Sunday morning service. That diminishes that number to 50. An average family might take four to six or more Sundays each year for vacation, long weekends with the family, or other family outings. Now we are down to some 44 or 45 Sundays. Almost everyone has a couple of Sundays, often more, when sickness perhaps keeps us from meeting with our church family. If there's only two, now we're down to 42 or so Sundays. And then we have those weekends where miscellaneous activities take over. Tax-free weekends. Shopping. Sports. Camping trips. Or maybe just the urge to, quote, stay in my pajamas and watch online. That can easily be another five or six weekends at least, which leaves us maybe 35 or 36 Sundays with our church family. Before you know it, an average church member can easily miss 16 to 20 Sundays, more than 30% of the church year. Now you're 78 hours available to worship, sing, pray, and one another with your church family is down to maybe 45 or 50 hours total. Now I ask you, 
Could you keep your job only showing up two-thirds of the time to work? If any of us did that, we would get our backsides fired so fast. What kind of husband or a wife or a mother or dad would you be if you were only emotionally available to your family or your spouse two-thirds of the time? You'd be a sorry excuse for a husband wife, father, mother. Where else can you go to get or give, to worship and serve what can only be experienced by the corporate worship of the body of Christ? Where else can you go to find a substitute that is sufficient for what we have when we gather together in obedience to the Lord? Scripture says, do not forsake assembling together as is the custom of some. Don't let it be your custom. Now, I want to qualify everything I've just said to say that I know there are those who are providentially hindered. I know there are very real reasons why some who are watching or even some who are here cannot be as faithful as you want to be because of your health, because of maybe other extenuating circumstances. But I said those things to the vast majority of us. Because listen to me, every time we choose to not be with the people of God at the appointed time to worship God, we are trading away something eternal for something that is temporary. When God calls you home, you will never regret one time that you chose to be in the house of God the times that you were willing to say no to other things. Abel worshiped God. That's all he was known for. May we be known for the same. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience and the attendance of these kind people. Thank you for the guests you've brought to us today as well as the faithful members of this congregation. May we realize the greatest privilege of this worship is that you are right here in our midst, changing our lives day by day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.